Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm Natalie Pearson. Antimicrobial resistance is now receiving the attention it demands, with major efforts underway around the world to prevent bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. But the narrative around antimicrobial resistance often excludes fungi, which are major pathogens of humanity and in which alarming new trends of resistance are emerging. To discuss these drivers of resistance and the work that is taking place to understand and mitigate them, I'm talking to Dr Justin Beardsley, a senior lecturer in infectious diseases at the Murray Bashir Institute Westmead Clinical School. Justin is a New Zealand-trained infectious disease specialist and clinical researcher. From 2012 to 2017, he was based in the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Ho Chi Minh City, where he was focused on fungal infections. There, he conducted a multinational randomized clinical trial into adjunctive steroid therapy for cryptococcal meningitis in Southeast Asia and Africa, as well as doing other work relating to immune responses in cryptococcal meningitis and the epidemiology of fungal infections. His current research focuses on the emergence of antifungal drug resistance, especially in Southeast Asia. Justin, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Many of us are familiar with the idea that bacteria is increasingly resistant to antibiotics, but your research is trying to draw attention to fungi, which, let's face it, many of us are not thinking about at all. So when I think of fungi, I think of, uh, I'm going to confess, I think of mushrooms and tinea. So can you shed more light on exactly what these fungal pathogens are? Yeah, and um, that's a great point, And thank you for illustrating that really well. I think uh, most people, when they think about fungal infections, do think about their skin infections or mucosal infections. So the tinnias and the thrushes, and they're not really so familiar with the invasive fungal infections, which is what my research has been focused on. There's a lot of reasons for that. Fungal infections are more rare than bacterial infections. You're less likely to know somebody who's suffered from a severe invasive fungal infection. But that loses the, the point, I guess, that they are actually major pathogens of humans. So when you look at infectious causes of death, the group of invasive fungal infections is second only to tuberculosis, and it causes more deaths annually than malaria. So they're a big deal, and people just underrecognize the scale of the problem, I think. Do you think it's because these fungal pathogens are not really like a sexy disease? Yeah, they receive a lot less funding from researchers. So that's kind of been shown empirically that despite that burden of disease, they get between 1% and 2% of all infectious disease research money. So I think we just know less about them. And they've become a little bit more of a kind of hot topic, I guess, in the last five to 10 years with aspergillus becoming increasingly resistant to antifungal therapies. And then Candida auris, which appeared just in the last decade as well as a whole new pathogen that's multidrug resistant. So that's increased their profile a bit. So can you talk us through what some of these fungal pathogens are? You've mentioned Candida and Aspergillus. Are they the main ones? Those are the two most important fungal pathogens of humans. And I guess, Natalie, another reason why they might not get so much attention is because these infections, they tend to affect people who've got underlying health conditions. So in Australia, it's people that have got hematological diseases or they've been treated for cancer or they've got other underlying immune deficiency problems, whereas in developing countries, the problem's much more associated with HIV. 
So it's not the whole population that's at risk generally, it's specific populations. And that might affect that kind of profile, I guess. How does it manifest if you have one of these fungal pathogens? What does it look like? Yeah, they're like bacteria, it varies by pathogen as to what part of the body they like to infect. For aspergillus, we're mostly seeing disease that affects the lung and it can invade through the lungs. And that's why well, we're inhaling spores of aspergillus all the time from the environment. So they just settle in our lungs. And if the environment's right from lung damage and weakened immune system, then they can start to invade the lung tissue. Candida, we much more commonly see as a, when it's invasive as a bloodstream infection. So candida just lives on our skin. That's its natural environment. But if you're suffering from a critical illness or you've had surgery or your immune system's not working well or you have intravenous access devices, it can get into the bloodstream and cause a really nasty infection. So these fungal pathogens affect humans, but they also are very important in agriculture and they also play a role with poultry, for example. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The vast majority of um, human fungal pathogens are not, that's not their principal niche. They don't live to infect humans. Apart from candida, which I explained, they don't really live on humans. We're not their natural environment. They're generally organisms that live in the environment. So they call them saprophytes, which means they're involved in breaking down organic matter. And in the case of yeasts, which is candida is the kind of yeast that's involved in fermenting. So they're kind of the environmental recyclers and they live in the environment and we come into contact them really by accident. And it's only in certain specific situations that they can cause disease. So when we're thinking about fungal pathogens, they obviously have a role to play in agriculture, but they also need to be controlled. Is that right? And how do you go about controlling them? Yeah, this is the challenge. And it's why a One Health approach is, I'm finding, so vital for dealing with fungal pathogens. It's that fungi actually destroy crops and they reduce productivity of farms and they can also spoil food after it's actually been harvested. And for that reason, farmers and food producers use a lot of antifungal agents. And the most commonly used one, or the most widespread use, I guess, is uh, from the azole class of antifungal drugs. They're used because they're not very toxic, so the farmers can safely use them. They're not very expensive, and they're not bulky, so it's 100 grams can cover a hectare. So that sounds great. (laughs) But the, the problem with using azoles in agriculture is azoles are actually the main antifungal drug we use to treat human diseases as well. And so there's the risk that those pathogens that can infect humans that are just living in the environment are then having this really long-term exposure to azoles in the environment. And when they do cause infection in a human, they won't be susceptible to those first-line drugs. So that's creating this resistance in the pathogens. Yeah. I know it's Interesting, there was a a tweet I was reading this morning relating to a paper that was written in 2000, which was somebody predicting the problem of azole use in agriculture causing problems in human pathogens. And at that stage, we really had no evidence of it. It was just being raised as, you know, this is risky. We're using the same drugs in plants and humans. And fast forward to 2020, and we've got new multidrug resistant pathogens appearing, and we've got old pathogens that we had good treatments for that are no longer responding to those therapies. And it's because of the agricultural antifungal use. That is somewhat dispiriting that it was anticipated and yet it has manifested exactly as predicted. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, this is the kind of motivation between One Health approaches is that this article was written by somebody from an agricultural perspective and it probably just wasn't picked up in the medical silo. And it's really important that we're all working together 
with agricultural specialists and also veterinary specialists who understand how antifungals are being used in animal husbandry. Like you mentioned poultry and azole use is widespread in poultry farming as well. So you've mentioned the One Health approach a couple of times, and I'd really like to ask you more about this. What is the One Health approach? What are the features of this particular approach? So One Health means that you're bringing together researchers, specialists, practitioners from human health, animal health, and plant health or ecological health perspectives. The reason for doing that is well highlighted by this story, I think, that we need to be aware of what each other is actually getting up to and understanding the, the competing demands. So it's vital that we have food security and we can produce our crops, but we might want to think about the human or animal health impacts that that could potentially have down the line. I think one really good illustration of this for me was right when I started doing the One Health projects with some agricultural colleagues, and I realized that the literature was really split. So the agricultural literature always refers to DMIs which is kind of a more chemical name for azoles. And so even if you did a search for azole use in agriculture, you wouldn't have found the right articles. You'd have to be looking for DMIs. And so just that sharing of knowledge and the shared understanding and terminology, I think is really important to investigate the problem and hopefully coming up with some solutions. Absolutely. So your work, um, I know that you've spent many years working in Vietnam and in pre-COVID times, you made several trips there each year for your research. What is it about the Vietnamese context that makes it so suitable for researching fungal pathogens? Yeah, so I went to Vietnam to investigate cryptococcal meningitis. And the reason it was a good place to do that research is that Vietnam has a super kind of centralized healthcare system and all the HIV patients in Ho Chi Minh City more or less go to just a couple of hospitals so we could get access to those patients. And that idea of things being concentrated in Vietnam is really useful for people who are researching infectious diseases. And the same situation is present with my current research. So now I'm working in the Mekong Delta, which is both densely populated and intensively farmed. So we see populations of at-risk people alongside the agricultural practices that could be driving resistance. So it's potentially a perfect storm and a really good place to do that research. So what is the health impact of resistance to these fungal pathogens? What does it look like when you're trying to assess these health impacts? Yes, what people need to appreciate is that fungal infections, invasive fungal infections are really serious. Whenever they occur, they have a high mortality. It can be up to 70% mortality despite getting therapy. And with the pathogens that have been well studied, where resistance has emerged, we see time and again, the resistance makes those outcomes even worse. You have to use different drugs, which may be more toxic or higher doses of drugs, but you may not really have any better drug options. And you just have to try and mix a few different antifungals together. So they they worsen the outcomes in terms of increased deaths and or disability resulting. Mm. So I understand that to assess the impacts, you're going to be, as part of this new project that you've proposed, establishing a clinical cohort. Can you tell us about the work you're going to be doing with this cohort? Yeah. So the work that I've done so far in Vietnam looking into this problem has been really based on sampling the environment and knowing what it is that people are inhaling. So we found shockingly high levels of drug resistance in in Vietnam, the resistance rates of 90% in Aspergillus fumigatus, which is the main pathogen that causes disease in humans. And that's not been described anywhere in the world before. Normally, people are worried about a resistance rate of around 10%. We saw some 
previously considered high rates of around 30% in Indian tea farms. So 90% is pretty astonishing. And now I want to find out how that's actually impacting patients. So patients that get these infections. And I'll be setting up a clinical cohort in Hanoi through the National Lung Hospital. And we're going to recruit people who previously had TB because they're in Vietnam, that's the, the biggest risk group for getting an aspergillus lung infection. We're going to find out what kind of aspergillus infects them, whether they have resistance, and how well they respond to therapy given resistance or no resistance. So hopefully start to yeah, complete the circle on that story. And have you received funding for this research yet? Yeah, I was um, received an investigator grant award from the NH and MRC, which will run over five years from, from this year. So we're really just getting ready to start the cohort. Mm, that's fantastic. And Justin, I understand you've also got a grant from the Sydney Institute of Agriculture that is examining the use of agricultural DMIs, which are the things that inhibit fungal pathogens in both Australia and Vietnam. So why are you taking this comparative approach? Why is that the most useful approach? Yeah, that was... Um really some great funding opportunity that we had through the Sydney Institute of Agriculture. And they were interested in our One Health approach. And the reason for comparing somewhere like Vietnam with somewhere like Australia is they're both very agriculturally dependent economies. So agriculture is a big part of what they do. But their approach to farming is really different. And that's a little bit what I was talking to you about in the Mekong Delta, where you've got densely populated and intensively farmed in the same place. That's quite different to what we would normally see in Australia, where farming happens quite distant to the urban centers. And so I was interested in how that has a different impact and might present different risks to populations, but also things like regulation of the agricultural chemical industries. And there are big differences and approaches there, but no one's really described them in any detail. So I wanted to examine that as well. Is one area of focus for you simply raising awareness about fungal pathogens? So that is a big struggle <laughs> and something that has been important for me to try and achieve just in terms of getting more coverage for what I think is an important infection and also for making more funding become available to researchers working in the area. And I mentioned I had a, a third project on the go at the moment, which is with WHO, and we were awarded a kind of project to help to prioritize the most important fungal pathogens uh, globally at the moment. And so that hopefully will be something else that we do that helps to raise the importance and relevance of fungal pathogens. And are you using this One Health approach across all of your projects? As much as possible, we try to incorporate One Health aspects into everything that we do. And so the Institute of Agriculture grant is an obvious one. The WHO project, we've included agriculture and veterinary and social science specialists in that grant. And the NH and MRC funded project will definitely be linking what we observe in the environment to what we observe in human health outcomes and taking those findings back to farmers and agricultural specialists and you know, helping them to question whether, well, azoles may be cheap and light and relatively non-toxic, but they're still the best choice in light of human health impacts. Astonishing. And of course, at SIAC, we are always keen to support and celebrate these sort of transdisciplinary initiatives. So uh, really congratulate you on the three projects and in particular, the funding you've just received through the NHMRC. Thank you. <laughs> My final question is, how will we know when we've got the balance right between the needs of productivity, the potential impacts on plant, animal and human health and regional bio and food security? That is an extremely tricky question. <laughs> I don't know what that will look like. 
but I know that the first step will be at least having a consciousness of the risks. Because I think at, at this point in time, it's really in its infancy that um, people from an agricultural angle really are even considering the potential impacts, not just on farmers, but on uh, the communities around agricultural areas. I know what the first step will look like, but how we'll work out when we've struck the right balance so is much more difficult to answer. Justin, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your really important research with us. It was a great privilege to talk to you today for SEAC Stories. Thank you. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.